The text for this morning is uh, Psalm 47, and uh, I will read it and, uh, and pray for us as we uh, prepare to hear God's Word. So again, Psalm 47, you can turn to that in your pew Bibles or on your phones. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the loud shout of a trumpet. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Let's pray. Father, we do come now even praising you as great king, as our great king that we've already done in, in many of the psalms that we've already sung. And we thank you that uh, we have this opportunity now to, to think deeply about what you are saying to us through this psalm. We pray that you would be at work now in the midst of us, uh, that you would use me as your instrument uh, to help us both to see more what this psalm is saying to us, what it says about you, and how it reveals Jesus to us, and how that will change our life profoundly, how we might think and live differently in light of what this psalm is saying to us. We pray you would do all these things in Jesus' great name. Amen. So what do you think of when you imagine a king? Do you start thinking of castles or long purple robes or maybe a golden crown and maybe a throne? Is it a positive image or is it neutral or maybe is it negative and oppressive? For many in our modern world, I think the idea of a king is just something that should be relegated to the world of fantasy. It's irrelevant maybe even abhorrent to some people. Maybe kings and queens, they're this interesting idea of the past. Maybe there's something we'd watch a Netflix series about to be entertained, but we'd never want a king in reality. I mean, we have, we've embraced these individualistic ideas of democracy that give us, the everyday people, the power and authority that kings used to have. We don't need some tyrant who's going to come and, and tell us what to do and have control over our lives. And yet, at the same time, it's interesting how every four years, many of us seem to get fixated on having this one particular person who's going to come and take control and fix everything. Despite the fact that as a culture we might reject the idea of monarchy as antiquated, we can't seem to escape this idea of, of one person coming to right all wrongs. 
And it haunts us in our literature and in our films, too. We know that something is wrong with the world, and we write these stories of some powerful yet humble sacrificial figure coming to fix it all and to unite everyone under his reign. You can think of King Arthur of Camelot, or Aragorn in The Lord of the Rings, or Simba in Lion King, or more recently, that I just watched a couple weeks ago, King T'Challa, that's how you pronounce his name, of Wakanda and the Black Panther. The list could just keep going on and on. We both love and we hate this idea of a king. We want the salvation and peace they could bring, but yet not the control that they might have over our lives. Well, kingship is clearly the central theme and the central picture of the psalm, so much so that, that some scholars have speculated that this psalm could have been a part of some enthronement festival and for the God of Israel back in those days. And those ideas at the end of the day are kind of speculative, but this psalm is meant to give us this beautiful picture of what it means for the God of Israel to be the universal king. It gives this triumphant image of him ascending the throne. And so the question that we're going to be asking of this psalm this morning is, what does it mean that God is this great king, and how are we called to respond to that reality? And then in this text, we get three aspects of the Lord's kingship. He is a universal king, he is a particular king, and he is the consummate king. And I'm looking for my water. Oh, it's right there. So first, let's think about God, how this text shows us that God is a universal king. And of course, that comes to us at the very opening lines, verse 1, clap your hands all peoples. This command's kind of surprising on a couple levels. First of all, the, the word that's used here for peoples is, is not the typical word that, that Israel would use and God would use of the nations in contrast to Israel, the, this word goyim. It's a, it's a different word that actually emphasizes the unity of all of mankind. And the clapping of hands, it's not just some kind of gesture of applause or excitement as we might see it today, but it was actually kind of a political gesture. One commentator says that the nations are being called to come to agreement in regards to their relationship to Yahweh, God of Israel. This, this verb is used here in other sections where in the Bible, such as when Saul becomes king over Israel in 1 Samuel, and they accept his reign. And this is so surprising because of the motif of conflict between the nations and the people of God that is this thread that goes throughout the whole story of God's people. It's even at the very beginning of this book of the Psalms. There in Psalm 2 we read in stark terms, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. I mean, these are really God's enemies that are being called to clap their hands. It's kind of outrageous, especially in light of what the verse 3 goes on to say. 
He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. So the nations are supposed to rejoice that, that God is conquering them through this tiny little nation of Israel. Now, I'm, as you'll find out as you get to know me, I'm not the most knowledgeable when it comes to sports. That's not a huge hobby for me. Uh, and I've recently, on top of that, made this transition from one sports world on, on one side of the state to a whole nother sports world here on this side of the state. But having given that preference, maybe this command might be similar to a situation where, hypothetical, where maybe the Ravens and the Steelers are, are facing each other in the Super Bowl. And the Steelers, of course, defeat the Ravens. And then they invite the Raven players and the fans to come over and celebrate their victory with them. And maybe if this isn't hitting you hard enough, flip that situation on its head. The Ravens have won, and now you, as a Steeler fan, maybe there's some Ravens fans out here too, uh, but as a Steeler fan and as a player, you're coming to celebrate the Ravens' victory in their party. It's kind of crazy. I mean, who would accept that kind of invitation? And yet, this invitation keeps coming out at this point in the book of the Psalms. There's, there's a shift going on. O. Palmer Robertson writes how in book one of the Psalms, David struggles with the many enemies as they attempt to derail every effort to establish the messianic kingdom of righteousness and mercy and love and peace. But now he makes a shift. Every, he's making every effort to communicate with these enemies. God, David rarely talks about these enemies in the second person with a you. yet in book two, where Psalm 47 falls, this is happening more and more. And in order to really make sense of what's going on, we have to go all the way back to God's original intention for mankind. We see in the opening chapters of Genesis that humanity was created to joyfully submit to God's kingship and to work as his representatives, subduing the earth and cultivating it. That's really what's behind this call in the first verse. But yet, as we know, the nations aren't doing what God intended them to do. And again, as we go further in the story of Genesis, we see first in the garden, in, in the garden with Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, how the, the first humans rejected the Lord's kingship over them. They were tempted to be like him, to be kings of themselves. And then a few years, a few, many years and a few chapters later, in Genesis 11, we find humanity as a whole doing the same thing, and they build a tower to heaven with the goal of, the goal of outdoing God as king and glorifying themselves. And so the Lord comes and responds by judging humanity and confusing their language and causing them to disperse over all the earth. You see, the rejection of God's kingship and the fragmentation, the division of humanity go hand in hand. The nations rage at each other ultimately because they first raged at God. That's why we have all this strife and all these wars and all this division. It's because we don't want God to be king, and when that's the case, we all begin making our personal stab at the throne. And that reminds us that rejecting God as king is not just a global problem, but it's a personal problem. 
The nations rage because individual hearts within those nations rage against God. I mean, if we honestly sit and evaluate ourselves, many times we're just trying to build our own little kingdoms. We want to make ourselves the kings of our own lives and set the agenda. We want to be served rather than serving others. To go back to the Lion King again, we're like Simba before his humbling wilderness experience when he just can't wait to be king. He sings, I'm going to be the main event like no king was before. No one's saying do this. No one's saying be there. Free to run around all day. Free to do it all my way. That is the human heart after the fall. That was what was going on in Adam and Eve in the garden that caused all this in the first place. And I think, unfortunately, if we really examine ourselves closely, that, this attitude can even, can even infiltrate the church. Uh, maybe within the church we create certain camps based on philosophy of ministry and ministry agendas or even certain particular theological ideas. Things that are even really good things but they suddenly become more about our own power and comfort. They become about building our own little kingdom rather than God's big kingdom. And so the nations can only find their unity and peace again in submitting to the one true king. And we personally can only find joy and peace by bowing our knee to him as well. And while this psalm is a personal reminder of our struggle with God's kingship and the need to submit to him, it's also a call and an encouragement to missions and evangelism. One of the real paradigm shifts for me personally when I, I begin studying at Westminster and begin learning about uh, biblical apologetics uh, was this idea that, that everyone really knows God. They know that he is their king deep down inside of them. In one of the key passages we would spend probably too much time at at Westminster was in Romans 1 where Paul says of humanity, what can be known of God, what, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his internal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. And so they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. When you're talking to your neighbor, maybe when you're talking to a coworker, when I'm on campus talking to some freshman, whether he's super confident or super scared and freaked out, we're all talking to people who know God. They know that they are subjects of this king deep down inside. And this comes out in verse 9, even just casually. God, the psalm says, the shields of the earth, and this word really is referring to the rulers, even the rulers, the most powerful rulers, they belong to God. They're already his. They, too, are called to clap their hands and make peace with God as their king. And the basic reason is just who God is. He's the blessed, only sovereign, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality and dwells in an approachable life, light. That's the reason the psalm, psalmist gives here in Psalm 47. 
He says, clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared. A great king over all the earth. He's already their king, inherently. By the very nature of who he is, he is to be feared. And so if the Lord really is this universal king that everyone is made to know and worship, and yet that's not what we see in a world post-fall, how, how is God going to deal with that? Well, in verse 4, we get a shift. We see how the psalmist goes from the universal necessities of all peoples to worship Yahweh, the one true God, back to this little nation of Israel. And so here we see the second point, that God is a particular king of a particular nation. And once again, I'll, I'll te- keep taking you back to Genesis, the chapter that comes right after the Babel incident, chapter 12. There, God calls Abraham, and he lays the very foundation of the nation that would later sing this psalm. And the promise that is in the background of this psalm is in what God tells Abraham in verses 2 through 3 of that chapter. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who will bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. It's through this promise and this unique covenant special love God shows to Abraham and his family that the psalm's multicultural worship vision will begin to be realized. God's work to reunite the peoples under his reign begins with with one little family and one people. And these images continue with verses 4 and 5. Here, we're getting more of Israel's history, how the psalmist sings about what God did in the conquest of the land of Canaan, recorded in the book of Joshua and Judges, and how that further revealed God's special love for Israel. And even in and of itself, these images give us another reason why God is to be feared as a great king. He showed his vast power in taking this powerless, tiny little group of enslaved people and establishing them as a kingdom in the land. And he had no problem doing it. But moreover, the central theme here is grace. God makes it clear to Israel throughout the Old Testament that he didn't choose them because of how big and powerful they were or their righteousness. In fact, the very name Jacob here reminds us of someone who by no means had any qualities that would incline God to calling him to be a part of his family and showing him his steadfast love. And these, these images kind of reach a climax which, with, uh, with verse 5, where we see an image that's possibly of David when he brought the ark of the Lord to Jerusalem in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 15. And this is another important moment for the psalmist to, hi- to highlight because all the themes of God's grace and God's coming to dwell with his people have reached this climax in this earthly king. King David. And yet all these moments of Israel's past and how it shows God's power and grace, they lead to this one section where one phrase is repeated over and over again. Sing praises. And I think it's important for us to just pause and take note of it. I mean, it's repeated so many times in the text. 
I mean, you could do a sermon on this passage and you could just merely talk about the call to evangelize the whole world. But the question is, why, why are we evangelizing in the first place? Why bother doing this? And John Piper has maybe even famously said, you may have heard this quoted here before, that missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. The missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate. And so the psalmist sees the nations actually being called into Israel's worship. It's not just this peace for peace's sake, but it's a peace flowing from worship's sake. And we think of even Jesus with one of the first conversations he has with an ethnic outsider, the, the Samaritan woman at the, el, at the well in John chapter 4. What does that discussion end up on? Worship. What is the Father really doing? He's seeking true worshipers to worship him in spirit and truth. And in a sense, this gives you guys a, a bit of a break. You've already been applying the psalm by being here in this worship service today. We're already working out this central part of what it's calling us to do. And yet, at the same time, singing praises is not only the ultimate goal, but it can be an actual means to the reunification of humanity under this great king, even here and now. Personally, some of the biggest moments of unity I've had with people who were really different from me was through worship. I remember one particularly profound moment of unity when in college I went up with my RUF group to St. Louis and we were doing a missions trip and we attended this worship service at an inner city church there. And because of its location, it was really diverse in a very visual way. Half the congregation was black and half the congregation was white. And even, it was so diverse, it had so many refugees, especially some from the Congo, that they actually printed the bulletin both in English and in French. And I just remember being overwhelmed at looking around and seeing all these people singing together, and even the worship they sang was diverse. They sang traditional hymns, rich with lyrics, and then sang even some good modern gospel songs. It was a moment of seeing a glimpse of the very reality that's pictured in this psalm. And yet, as we've hinted at at this point, the story doesn't stop with God's people in Israel. In, in the last verses here, verses 8 through 9, we get something, the, the, the writer is going beyond the pages of Israel's history into another place. And so how this grace will play out further develops as we will look at the rest of biblical history to account for this amazing ending to the psalm. And so this is the third point. We'll finally see how this psalm shows us that, that God is the consummate king. Some of you may have heard of or have seen a show called The Man in the High Castle. I don't know if I can fully recommend it, but I'm pulling this this. Uh, this illustration from there because I think it fits well. But fundamentally, if you don't know about it, it's a fiction story based on a, a book of what the world would look like if the Axis powers, Germany and Japan, had won World War II instead of the Allies. And one of the early parts of this plot 
is one of the main characters is given these film reels. And as they, they eventually are so curious, they go and peek in these film re reels and watch them, they discover that they appear to be footage of what we know as true history. In these films, the allied powers actually defeated the Axis powers, and there's joy and peace and celebration. And even though these are just films, they become the focus of, of German and Japanese investigation. Officials on both sides are, are working really hard to confiscate these films, to find them and destroy them or use them for their own purposes. And so why? why? Why care about films? Why care about a vision? Well, they realize that they breed hope. Those in power knew that what effect such a vision of hope could have, a vision of a different possible reality. And so they want to squelch it out. In some ways, this psalm's closing vision is meant to function the same way, both for Israel, who would have been first singing this psalm, and for us today. It's a window into another reality, one that is coming and is even breaking into the present in certain ways. And it can give us hope as we live in the midst of a broken and divided world where many people live as if there is no king. So the first verses here, they return us to this vision of international worship. Now not only is just a command, but as a reality. The psalmist writes, God reigns over the nations. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. People from all nations have now somehow become a part of this one family. It's, it's as if what God commanded in the previous psalm, Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God, I will be exalted among the nations, I will be exalted in the earth. It's as if that has actually happened. But how is that possible? When we look at the whole Old Testament story, God's mission to reign over the nations through Israel seems to have failed. I mean, Israel themselves, they continually, they disobey the Lord and they rebel against his kingship. Even their request for a king was a rejection of God as their king in the first place. And they're not, they're not the light to the nations that God continually exhorts them to be. And even when at that point, they're driven into exile, and even when they come back from exile, they're just a small little remnant, and the glory of their nation isn't anywhere close to what it used to be. The Abrahamic hope that we talked about earlier, it just seems to be kind of a joke at this point. How can the grace shown to Israel result in global worship when Israel can't even seem to get it right? And this seeming dead end of the story is exactly where Jesus shows up on the scene. And what does he do? The first thing when he shows up, he proclaims at the beginning of his ministry, the kingdom of God is near. And as we look at his life and teaching, we see exactly the joyful submission to God as king that this song proclaims. When he came, he, he sang this song with his life, and, and he invited Israel once again to sing it with him. And even more, in his words and in his, de and in his deeds, he showed himself to be the Lord, to be this great king. 
who is to be feared. He claimed authority over everyone and everything. He called the disciples who obeyed his word and followed him. He cast out demons. Even the wind and the waves obeyed him. He claims to be the Lord of the Sabbath and even have authority to forgive sins. And yet still his own people rejected him and said, We have no king but Caesar. And they had him sentenced to death. And soldiers mocked his claim to kingship, seeing him as a poor excuse for a regional small king, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, as they spit on him and beat him. And again, from a human perspective, God's attempt to bring his kingship to bear on his people one more time has failed as Jesus hung on the cross. But that wasn't the end of the story. Something greater was happening on the cross, and Christ's resurrection three days later proved it. Rather than being another dead end, this was exactly what God planned. Christ's death on the cross would be the answer to how all the peoples of the earth would come to acknowledge God's kingship over them and worship him with joy. As Paul writes in Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. He who was the great king, he who really could sing, I'm the main event, he took the form of a servant. He came to serve and not to be served. He listened to the father when he said, do this and be there, even when it meant death on a cross. And on that cross, he died the death that we as rebellious subjects of the kingdom deserve to die. And even more, there he defeated all of humanity's enemies that were tearing them apart and further causing this division of Satan and sin and death. And he enabled us once again to joyfully sing songs of praise to him. And as a result, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The vision of the Lord God highly exalted as a great king over all the nations that the psalmist is seeing as he writes this psalm is ultimately a vision of the ascended, resurrected Christ. That is who is going up with a shout. Who Paul writes was raised from the dead and seated at God's right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And what do we see as one of the first acts of this ascended, resurrected King Jesus? We see him sending his spirit to begin to reverse the effects of what happened at Babel. When he is lifted up from the earth, he begins to draw all people to himself. And we see this in Acts chapter 2 with the beginnings of the New Testament people of God, where after the coming of the Spirit, the remaining followers of Jesus were all filled with it, 
filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And now there were dwelling in Jerusalem devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound of the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. It's as as if that curse that God poured out on humanity at Babel is being undone, is unraveling. The languages are no longer confused. And this movement of the spirit of Christ the King continues to move out through the whole globe as the good news of Christ's life, death, and resurrection is spread throughout the globe by his church. Truly, the peoples are beginning to gather as the people of the God of Abraham. If you're united to Christ, this exalted king, if if you trust in him by faith for redemption and forgiveness of your sins, you're actually a part of this psalm's fulfillment. You're a part of seeing this prophecy become a reality. Most of us here are probably not ethnically Jewish. I think I can safely say that. Um, Praise God if you here and are. That is even more, I mean, that's awesome too. Um, we are the nations that the psalm is speaking of. But it doesn't even stop with us. Even now, as we wait for the finality of this movement of the Spirit, when the great King Jesus will return and usher in his kingdom and its fullness in the new heavens and new earth, there, what do we see? We see the kings of the earth bringing into it the glory and the honor of the nations. And there, there will be a tree of life that will be for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be strife, division, but as that true king, Jesus, is reigning and is exalted, there will be peace. Don't you want to follow this king? Don't you want to call others into knowing him and worshiping him? Let me pray for us. Father, we do confess that So much of the time, we do not really want you to be our king. We do not want your son as our king either. To follow him means to deny ourselves. It means to put away our own attempts at taking the throne and to follow him in the path of service. And yet we are humbled that you sent King Jesus to save us, that he was mocked and rejected for us, his rebellious subjects. We praise you for the work of your spirit that has begun to help us see that you are our true king and that you rule us, rule in us through Jesus. We pray that would sink deeper into us, that we would wake up every morning knowing that there is one true king and he is not us, and yet he is far greater and more merciful and more just than anyone we could imagine. We thank you that we see this reality of your kingdom breaking into history and you reuniting the peoples once again in the church, even though the church is broken and we still persevere in a fallen world. We praise you for the ways we see this vision becoming a reality. Help us to continue to call the nations to be, re- to be reconciled to this great king so that they might cry out for joy and find what you created them for. We pray all this in the great King Jesus' name. Amen.